Hello, I'm Anna Serene, and you're listening to Berlinale's House of Talents. We're not working all from a space where we are, uh, there's a consistency in terms of sensitivity, in terms of consideration, in terms of education and awareness. We have to know about you to the point where we become more American than American, more German than the Germans. But you don't need to know about us, and where we meet is not an even playing field. How can you make voice emerge from the continent if they are not fitting the criteria that film festivals are looking for? What we are talking about uh, loads these days is also like questions of uh, visibility and power dynamics and who does the invisible work and the, who gets the recognition. I've really developed and refined a practice or a way of working that reflects narrative sovereignty, meaning that we have control over our own stories as indigenous people. It was really important to me that we touch base with the cultural leadership and the people in each location to ask permission. Just because I'm from Bella Bella doesn't give me carte blanche to do whatever I want with cameras there. So we really wanted to be a space that created that opportunity to watch cinemas and speak the language of the, uh, the multiplicities that existed. Time to break with old habits. In this episode, we hear from film professionals committed to challenging norms and promoting alternative ways of thinking about filmmaking. At Berlinale Talents, we welcome this because we've learned over time that there's no easy fix to creating a fair film community. Talents has always scouted out filmmakers who boldly engage in discussions on representation in the film industry. And our archive is rife with their thoughts and proposals. So let's hear from curators, a queer collective, indigenous filmmakers, and the people behind community cinemas. The film industry has had trouble dealing with the tension between taste and responsibility. The Black Lives Matter movement has exposed structural flaws in the edifice and called on us to fundamentally rethink which faces and narratives feature on the big screen. In this 2019 talk, African filmmakers frankly assess the lack of access that plagues the international film market. Here's Dorothy Venner in conversation with Limo Hang Jeremiah Mosese, an engaged audience member, and Perivi Katyavivi. I think we shared about this 15 years or more on panels like this. And I don't know, I'm a I'm little bit overstepping possibly by saying this, but my observation is that uh, looking at why we get stuck is because sometimes this kind of panels lack honesty. And the honesty consists, in my view, it's a very personal view, but I think uh, the, uh, the honesty is lacking because there is a lot of fear involved by those people, including the decision-making of, of people, including the funders. And that is from the European side. Uh, if we uh, look at what's going on of being critical also about films that maybe we don't like... Uh, and it's a different way of talking about an African film I don't like than it is about a Finnish film or a Polish film. Because there's always this element, and I'm speaking as a programmer who's sat in those jury meetings, in those decision-making rounds a lot. I think there is this kind of fear of being accused a racist And on the other hand, I think there is also a dynamic that comes from the African side. Now, this is my question to all of you. If you would like to share some experiences where you were faced with racism as filmmakers, as producers, as people in the industry, where you felt 
shit, uh, I, I'm not getting out of this because this is a kind of racism in a maybe pseudo very progressive environment where uh, you know we don't know how to address these issues or what is your view on that you know for me i don't know if it's a racism is the right word um to describe it but more some sort of prejudice in a way um that uh the common thing has always been about um the the acceptance of mediocre standard by europeans when it comes to mm -hmm. african cinema or African cinemas. Mm -hmm. I've had this so many times where they said, it's pretty good for African film. Mm -hmm. This is very common. Mm -hmm. and, um, and also, the expectations that you have as a creator or as an artist to do, uh, make something colors, make something vibrant, uh, have something African to it. But of course, without saying it directly, is sort of an expectation that you have as a creator, as an artist, to have something that is sort of, I don't know, uh, what do they call it nowadays? So it's always like have to have an urge, African urge to it. So for me personally, I feel like it's a, maybe this profiling or the stereotyping that I go through as far as the Europe and as far as being, uh, being an artist and coming from uh, in Lesotho in Africa, mm -hmm. is sort of being pigeonholed into making an African film that feel and look like African film. Hi, um, <clears throat> I'm an African-American uh, descendant of African slaves. So as an American, I won't take up too much space. But as an African, I feel that I have a place in this conversation. You know, going back to your earlier point about honesty, I thought that was a fantastic point um, on panels and on juries. What is the space between being you know, being afraid of being called racist and acknowledging that there is a grammar and a language mm. to black life and cinema and African cinema, same for African-American cinema, that needs to be learned. There needs to be criticism, writing about it, education about it. Audiences need to be educated about how to read our films because they see them and they don't know what they're looking at. When I play my film in a room full of black people, people are laughing when they're supposed to laugh. They're silent when they're supposed to be quiet. When I play it in a room full of white people, they're just silent and stunned and all they've seen is the tragedy. And so I think that there's cultural work to be done in the conversations around our films that can take it out of the place of, am I racist or do I like it? And take it to a place of, do I have the intellectual tools to understand what I'm seeing? Thank you very much. Right. Um, can I just say something to that? I think what you, your response was so important there, I think because we're also we're ignoring questions of power as if we all have the same access to resources, have the same access to networks, etc. And we're not ignoring the fact that, you know, there's a quote in our film, in film festival film, there's a moment where we hear Fanon, our, our protagonist, the filmmaker at the festival, we hear her inner thoughts, and she said something about, um, uh, I know I'm fluent in you, and you know nothing about me, you know? And this is really what we contest with. So even who we are, we talk about back home on the continent, our structures are not our own. This is a system that's been applied where we are. It's not a question of just getting on with it and accessing and doing the thing. Um, you know, you can spend an entire time, an entire lifetime living in Africa and never learn an African language if you're European and be in positions of power, have success, have a job. Imagine, you know, the opposite. You can't operate in that way. So we're not, 
working all from a space where we are, uh, there's a consistency in terms of sensitivity, in terms of consideration, in terms of education and awareness, we have to know about you to the point where we become more American than American, more German than the Germans, but you don't need to know about us and where we meet is not an even playing field. So if anything, in terms of solutions, it's, let's be a bit more honest um, about where we all operate from, you know, and we're all complicit in certain ways, I think. Curators are the gatekeepers of the art world. But rather than keeping the gates closed, the curators we met in 2020 are keen to fling them wide open and showcase the work of artists that have been sidelined. What these curators think needs urgent reinvention? The selection criteria of international film festivals, which they see as far too conservative as things stand. Jamila Granditz, Claire Diao and Maria Berrios here put forward their simple yet effective ideas for a more inclusive film landscape. Yeah, I think it's interesting if you mention, um, for example, when it comes to festivals and quotas um, and also selection criteria that is influenced by company structures, by sponsors, by um, funds from municipality, but also, for example, Creative Europe um, that limits, or that it doesn't limit, but it does define a certain percentage of European films that have to be included into a festival and what does it do when it comes to the question of representation, for example. And um, what I wonder is if we talk, for example, about quota or about the fact that um, certain industries are quite closed off, if you refer to Ghana, for example, um, that the distribution infrastructure, the global distribution infrastructure is very much focused on euros and on the United States. Um, and for the moment I oftentimes have the feeling that there is content coming from the continent that is produced for the European and for the American market and in 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 a way I think it's super important that there is a change in representation within the international festivals and also a change um, of programmers actually going to places and not having stuff always brought to them. I think this is also a political aspect that one could talk about, that where do the slabs take place, where do the co-pro markets take place, and it's oftentimes European producers for waiting um, for um, stuff to brought doubts them. Um, and then there's a question of of this really thin line in between representation and tokenism in a way also and obviously we need this period of change and transgression um, where, where we talk about quotas and where we facilitate those but can we at one point maybe move into the other direction and if so how? I know that's a really big question but it's something that I've, I'm wondering about a lot when it comes to the Pan-African and diasporic, also interconnectedness where people now go back and forth and where new infrastructures are emerging in all kinds of places. As you say there's an interest from the outside but also on on location there is a lot of things happening when you talk about Ghana, when you talk about Senegal, when you talk about Mali for example. Yeah. Um, yes, I think it's changing because right now we have, if we talk about the African continent, we have film schools on the continent, we have few labs, we have some funds as well, some countries support their own cinema. But then yet, 
reaching the international level or international film circuits, it's quite complicating. I don't know how is it regarding to Asia or Latin America, but it's each time you have someone coming from Europe or the United States, they are the one on stage. So you never have the situation where they will be the ones sitting in the room and the local filmmakers or producers or film professionals will be the ones speaking. And I think it's still a problem because it means that you have the knowledge from abroad, you bring the knowledge on the continent, and so wherever you are, abroad or on the continent, you are the one with the knowledge. Yeah. And it's not true because sometimes if it's not working, it's maybe also because it is not the way it works locally. And uh, I think we have a lack of perspective on what's working there, what's working outside. Many films that have su success abroad, as you said, are co-produced by European uh, producers or international companies. So they are not reaching the same audience when they are screened on the continent. And local films have no success in film festival. They will be even rejected on the first uh, watch, you know? Like, oh no, this is not all criteria. So what does it mean? And how can you make voice emerge from the continent if they are not uh, fitting the criteria that uh, film festivals are looking for? So this is something really weird, but it's a situation that we are facing at the moment. If you say um, that the selection criteria doesn't fit the, the, the structure of the narratives, for example, or the... Um, distribution criteria that are valid for a European and then US American context do not fit mm. the distribution possibilities and mechanisms on the continent. Maybe if we talk about how we could rewrite selection criteria and how we could rewrite criteria in general, one strategy might be diversifying the range of narratives and also maybe formal structures and, and being more open to those and also to come up with alternative mechanisms of distribution. And um, also if it comes to production output, I think film festivals often focus on, on very recent works. There's this whole premiere logic that is slowly break broken open and, and broken apart, but it's still very much in place. And if you have uh, places that don't have such a high production output, it might be maybe a good idea to question those mechanisms and, and just come up with new and alternative mechanisms of distribution. And um, as you say, the knowledge doesn't always have to come from the already established one, but if you take into consideration concepts and ideas that are already in place, um, you could diversify the whole industry in a way. Yeah. I would just like to maybe follow up on sure. something that I think is super important because for me, your question really has to do with this rewriting the selection criteria issue. And for me, that's actually, I totally share with you that the art world is e even more conservative. I mean, that's what I meant by that. At least in cinema, there's a recognition of the collective work and in art, there's still this kind of like little dotted line like the Discovery Channel like it started here with this guy and then this guy and then all we've managed to do is kind of like footnote that a little bit to hold that scaffolding up when actually it should just be like completely demolished but and and that scaffolding is the same and it's the basis of the owner like this kind of ownership of that narrative so for me what has to change is that narrative, the way that narrative is articulated, this idea of ownership, this idea of discovering, this idea of the new, because, I mean, a lot of this idea of, um, yeah, un unknown artists or unknown filmmakers because they're 
pretty much not unknown in their own context. So for me, this is really something that is very important to, to challenge all the time. And that is actually, I feel, what we can do. Like, we may not be able to rewrite that narrative, but we can challenge that narrative. And especially we can challenge the way that narrative is articulated, the kind of voices that are allowed to articulate that. And we can say, okay, if you want to talk about these like more vulnerable positions, then you have to hear these, this more vulnerable way of articulating those voices. And I think that that's super important and that's what we should be held accountable for because it's our job. It's not only the, we are working for that narrative also when we are doing research on these more invisibilized stories, which I also do a lot of research on. It's not because they're undiscovered that I think they're fascinating. It's because they do things that I think are extremely relevant. And um, so I think that, and, and I'm the one putting it forward. I'm making that visible somehow. So when I do that, I have to be held accountable for what happens with that and if it's just going to go end up in, in the case of the art, like in the vault of some metropolitan museum and be buried there when this fad is over. And then what happens to the context this was made for, where it was supposed to be creating something, it's just completely forgotten and nobody's holding them accountable for that. And I think that's really, really important to be pushing hard now. There's also that goes along very closely this, as you say, this entitlement to discovery that is um, very um, problematic oftentimes that goes along with it. And maybe if, if you say we have to challenge the narrative, that is maybe quite key in all the positions that we've been talking about. Let's return to the perspective of those behind the camera. The German collective Junglinger Films are a fine example of how queerness allows us not only to rethink matters of form, but also means of creation. Keen to do away with stale hierarchies, Paulina Lorenz, Faraz Shariat and Raquel Molt here talk about the creative process behind their acclaimed 2020 feature film, Futur 3. One thing that I think is very interesting um, in terms of yeah, both the work you do and how you describe your work with this kind of idea of playground or lab, trying out things, and also um, in our film, um, kind of future and like fictions of the future is a really big um, theme. And I think um, in another talk, Farah said the other day that um, he, you also considered a queer strategy to kind of um, rewrite your own history, your own future, and kind of imagine these different possibilities of what you can be as, as a queer person, as a person with migration experience, as a person of color. Um, and I think that's something that um, uh, necessarily also um, has an effect on the form and kind of the aesthetic of the film. Um, so I think that's something that I find very interesting, this idea of yeah, envisioning different futures and playing with fictions of what, what could be. I also think that um, within our um, collective that the idea to create a space that is not there yet and that and also to um, I think many of us grow up uh, feeling that they uh, have to adapt to a certain environment or that they have to um, live camouflage or maybe um, somehow feel that other people are in the power of shaping the way you navigate life. And I think 
for me, that is one of the like uh, queerest parts structurally that we um, just take up space and um, create our own visibility and that we also um, prove to the public that what we do is, um, is valuable and also a part of this whole system and that uh, in itself is like, I think, a very queer act. Um, especially, obviously, in like contrast to um, the like uh, educational system of film schools and also the um, system of um, broadcasting stations here in Germany. In general, like I, I sometimes think that what we did is also to hack the system of um, film production in a way because films like ours normally don't exist in Germany, and that's. Uh, yeah, I think something that we can be super out and proud about. I think, yeah, what uh, Foas just said or what uh, we are talking about uh, loads these days is also like questions of uh, visibility and power dynamics and who does the invisible work and the yeah gets the rec and who gets the recognition. And we're talking so much about like power dynamics um, within our films on screen. And I think now we really started a conversation about the power dynamics within our group. And also I think it's so interesting because in our group we have really different uh, privileges as identities. <laughs> um, and also like these privileges or not privileges go uh, or go correlate um, with our like positions within the collective. Like who does a lot of community or care work, um, who does the communication work, who is like um, facilitating the money, who can decide um, who gets the money and stuff. And also, at the beginning, we were thinking about like um, casting non-professional actors for the main cast. So we worked a lot with organizations and institutions who um, identify themselves as queer, post-migrant, work with queer refugees and stuff. And so the casting process was not only like a normal casting process and just more like a research process. Um, we're not like we're casting people, invite them and do a casting tape with them. We were more like talking with them. And at the beginning of the process, I was not really interested in the process of casting. I was more interested in um, questions of representation and I was watching a lot of films and had a lot of questions regarding um, who can um, yeah, act or play um, which characters, so who's entitled to, to do so. So for me, um, like meeting people was like really important. Also, we did uh, like theater academy before shooting. And we wanted to involve all the extras, everybody who you see in this film, um, to be a part of the production process as well. So every department, for example, Aydin uh, did a, the main actor of Futedrai also did a workshop uh, um, for acting for all the extras. Or our costume designer came one day. Um, yeah, and so I think it was the casting process was not just casting, but also like a really um, community um, space or community process, uh, which had a lot to do with questions of representation and research um, of the story. And also, I think the research and the casting process deeply 
um, influenced the way Paulina and uh, Faraz were writing the script because um, when Faraz and I met um, like some actor or some non-professional queer refugee, blah, blah, they also like reflected their way of writing the script and we were talking about mm, maybe we have to change this and that, that because this person um, told us about a certain um, experience and I think that um, there are so multiple perspectives within the film um, it was also yeah had something to do with the casting process as well. Indigenous people have experienced a long history of misrepresentation. Yet a new generation of filmmakers is seeking to conjugate ethical positions with inventive filmmaking. Their goal is to put the communities they film front and centre, and for some, adopting filmmaking protocols is the first step in achieving narrative sovereignty. Talent alumna El Maya Tailfeathers talks about the responsibility of working with Indigenous communities and the rewards her engagement brought her. Um, with The Body Remembers, uh, we made that film for an Indigenous audience first and foremost, and um, more specifically Indigenous women and Indigenous youth. Um, and that film was an effort to make sure that um, Indigenous women and youth felt like their stories were being seen and heard in a very authentic way, um, and that our stories deserve space on screen. Um, and so, yeah, again, that can be kind of a heavy responsibility, but I think it's also a really beautiful place to work from. And then there's kind of like this, this burden of, I guess, like education that comes when you're, when you have to tell stories for a non-Indigenous audience, um, which, I'm just really tired of. So I've been trying to, to not um, think about that in my work. And it's really liberating just to think that I'm making this for my community. I'm making this for people who understand. Um, and I don't have to kind of like babysit my audience or, or educate them along the way because it can be so restricting um, and also really heavy, you know? The film is about two Indigenous women from very different lived experiences encountering each other uh, on the street. One of them has fled from a domestic violence situation. Um, and uh, like one of the characters in the film, I, I ended up taking this young woman home with me and thinking that I could help her and very quickly realized that I did not have the skill set or experience to do so. Um, and the the that moment for me was very eye-opening and I guess sort of a confrontation of my own privilege. And I learned so much from this young woman that day. Uh, I never saw her again. And I carried the story with me for years. Um, I walked past her building on a regular basis because it's just a couple blocks from my house. And uh, there was so much to consider ethically in terms of um, bringing a story to the screen that wasn't that didn't just belong to me, it belonged to her as well. It was also her experience. And I, of course, can't speak for her or how she felt. Um, and so we decided to fictionalize it. Um, and I also, uh, most of my experience as a director was was in documentary prior to that film. I, of course, have worked as an actor for quite a long time, but uh, it's a different, it's a different skill set. Um, and so I approached uh, a good friend whose work I, I really admire. Her name's Kathleen Hepburn. Uh, and Kathleen and I co-wrote and, and co-directed. Um, I really love the process of collaboration. Um, and we shot the film as a continuous take and had to build in uh, 12 camera transitions. Um, and so it was really technically 
challenging. Um, it's something that, as far as we know, has never been done before uh, in film. And so uh, it was a wonderful experience to have a collaborator, to have someone who uh, I could count on. And um, I feel like it only served to enrich the process. Um, but behind behind the camera, it was also really important to think about narrative sovereignty and um, the Indigenous community that, that worked on the film. Um, and in Canada, we have a great shortage of Indigenous people working in key technical positions, so camera, lighting, sound, all of those things. There are, uh, there are people who are experienced and talented in those fields, but there's not enough to be able to work on, on all of the films. And so we had to consider um, what it meant to, to, to tell this kind of story and also try and build capacity within the Indigenous film community. Um, and so we built in a number of, uh, a number of things into the process. Uh, we had like an Indigenous youth mentorship project where we had young Indigenous people working in all of the key technical departments um, in a collaborative way with the head of each department. Um, and we had to consider the fact that, uh, you know, in Canada, settlers, non-Indigenous people have a lot of unlearning to do. There's a lot of racial bias that exists um, and genocide is ongoing in this country. Uh, and so we wanted to ensure that we weren't doing harm to the Indigenous people we were bringing onto our crew. Um, and we wanted our non-Indigenous crew to understand the gravity of the story we were telling and also the fact that, you know, we face violence on a daily basis as Indigenous people. Um, so we did uh, sort of like cultural competency, anti-oppression training for the whole crew before we started, started rolling. And I feel like it really set the tone uh, for this like understanding of responsibility, but also respect and, and humility and um, and just a sense of community on set. And, and we, we worked really hard to also kind of dismantle those, uh, those toxic hierarchical forms of working that exist in the mainstream film industry. And I think Kathleen and I both being women directors, we wanted to kind of like, you know, break down those, those, those structures that, that are so, um, so oppressive on, on set. Um, so there was a lot of, a lot to consider just in terms of the process and, and how to tell this story um, in an ethical way and just to just to build a new way of working and it was such a wonderful process and, and I hope to uh, to use aspects of it on my next film. A Heil Suk and Mohawk woman, Zoe Lee Hopkins is another Indigenous filmmaker committed to her community. Here, she recalls the meticulous preparation behind her first feature film, Kayak to Klemtu, and the experience of returning, film in hand, to the coastal communities she portrayed. You're talking about my first feature film, which is called Kayak to Klemtu, uh, which I filmed um, in many coastal, coastal communities along um, uh, the Great Bear Rainforest in BC. Um, and we filmed in five different communities, one of them uh, being Bella Bella, which is where I was born and where my mother's people live. And uh, in approaching all the communities we filmed Kayak to Klim 2 in, there was, it was really important to me that we touch base with the cultural leadership and the people in each location to ask permission, both of my own people, uh, just because I'm from Bella Bella doesn't give me carte blanche to do whatever I want with cameras there. Um, so I wanted to make sure that we were following whatever protocol 
existed in each of the communities. And in Bella Bella, they're very um, sort of advanced in terms of having a system in place for uh, uh, filming requests. Because it's in the Great Bear Rainforest, there are so many international film crews that come through our territory. When you go to places like Clem 2 or other places where we have the white black bear, which is very sought after to be photographed, you have to go through Bella Bella. You cannot get anywhere else. <laughs> so people do a lot of filming. A lot of German crews go through our, our territory. So they've had to establish this like um, paperwork you know, to go through. So I had to do the paperwork to ask permission of our chiefs to film. And there's our hereditary chiefs. Some of them sit on this committee to you know, read over the application and part of their um, uh, system that they have in place is they ask for uh, um, use of any of the footage that you've captured and um, that you have in place that you have funds to hire um, people in the community and that you you know that you're not just going to like extract and then never return so that's a really really lovely thing that they have in place and um, but that's not the case for any of the other filming of the places we filmed in there was no sort of structure in place so we ended up, ended up being like who can we talk to um, to ask permission and sort of people would be like, well, maybe, maybe this guy, you know, and like, uh, so, um, so it was very, uh, in some places like in Tla'amen, which is um, on, it's on the mainland of Vancouver, but you have to take two ferries to get there because <laughs> you can't just drive there. Um, so it's a little bit remote. Um, so we, we met with the local leadership there the, and there were the elected leadership and we just had lunch with them it was really lovely and I, I because it's a movie set on the water largely on the water about a, a, a journey on the water and I come from uh, canoe people I borrowed from canoe culture and asked permission to come ashore and whenever we're traveling amongst each other's communities we, we stop in the canoe and like ask permission of the leaders who are standing on the shore to, to come ashore and so we had lunch and I asked them to come ashore at lunch. It was kind of funny and weird, but they actually really appreciated that. And, and um, we, we filmed so much in their territory. It was so beautiful. Um, I think we filmed three quarters of the film there. And then the rest of the journey um, was along the way. And it was sort of varying degrees of that type of approach to to ask, and then it was really important to me to return to all of those, all of those communities and show the film everywhere where we filmed. And so the people could come and we showed it in the big house in, in Clem 2 and um, in uh, a location where we filmed in Bella Bella and in a cute little movie theater near one of the communities and then in a historical movie theater outside of Tlaamen which was really interesting because we, we showed it there and it was really sold out and so we had a couple screenings. But um, it, I was told by the grandparents of our lead, um, who was from that territory, that when they went in the 70s in that movie theater, um, they weren't allowed to sit on the main level as Native people. They had to sit in the balcony. And, um, and I was like, oh, the 70s is like... 
yesterday. So as a little girl, I wouldn't have been able to sit in the main level of that movie theater. And it just was so striking to me to be premiering a film that I made and wrote and directed and was starring the people from that territory. Two, two very famous actors were from that community and then they were gonna grace the screen in that theater and their whole family was gonna be able to sit wherever they wanted. And was, that's, that's just such a short period of time for that amount of change to have occurred and I was just like really I was I was crying going into the theater looking at her grandparents going to sit in the front row of that place it was kind of amazing Community cinemas are the last step in our journey towards reimagining the film world in cities where village like routines persist the owners of these cinemas know where the taste of local spectators lies when it comes to independent films so let's hear from Boutena Kazim behind Cinema Akil in Dubai, Bernie Goldblatt of Cine Gimbi in Burkina Faso, as well as Catalina Marine Duarte and Dominga Sotomayor from the CCC in Chile. We met in 2014. We're at a very similar stage of wanting to address the similar frustrations of, you know, the lost uh, sort of memories of cinema going, collective experiences, creation of public space. So all of these things rang true for us when we started working on this project. Uh, we started as a nomadic cinema, as uh, you were saying. You know, it's something that uh, was a temporary solution that became sort of the, the the sort of the heart and soul of what we do. And we traveled with our programming without waiting for a space. Uh, I mean, we realized very quickly that it would be very expensive, very prohibitive from a regulatory standpoint to open a permanent art house cinema in a in a country where you know you had the highest number of uh, multiplexes uh, screens uh, per capita in the region you have about 396 i think is the last count uh, screens but all of them uh, being uh, you know geared towards blockbuster and commercial films so out of that sort of uh, landscape came the idea to set up an independent cinema that spoke the language of the context that we were trying to uh, speak to, that we were trying to present, and it came out of also a frustration of not being able to see ourselves on screen. And when I say ourselves, it's a very conscious selves uh, in the plural, because, you know, Dubai is a very, very uh, diverse city. It's, uh, you know, it has uh, the famous 200 nationalities sort of living under, you know, in one, one place. And uh, very rarely do you see representation outside the film festival, which is also now gone, uh, you know, of the cinemas of these, uh, of, the, of the context of our region. So we really wanted to be a space that created that opportunity to watch cinemas and speak the language of the, uh, the multiplicities that existed. Bernie, maybe for the beginning also you could give us um, an idea of how you work. Uh, you emphasize, like Botena, that you do have a lot of social interaction, as you also said. It's very, very important that we relate to the immediate neighborhood, to the specific of our place where we operate from. Uh, if you could say, how do you relate to the neighborhood, to the quartier where the cinema uh, is going to open soon? Okay. In, in, inside the team, we have people from the neighborhood, in, in the immediate executive team. And from, right from the start, we always, uh, whatever happens inside the project, whatever big decisions we make, we always go to inform and to take also the ideas of um, the community leaders, religious leaders, youth leaders, women leaders. Um, it's, it's, the Burkina Faso, the, the cities work a lot 
as vi a lot of like the villages. So if you don't do like this, of course, your project will never work out because the idea is that uh, we are not building a bank. I mean, we are giving life to a, a very popular place and we wanted to get it back like this. Mm -hmm. So um, I give an example for, uh, there was a market. There was a market held by about 80 women selling vegetables and fruits um, during 50 years behind the, just next to the cinema. And because we started to construct the whole construction in 2015, we, there was a problem with this market because it disturbed, of course, the whole work. And all of the people who, you know, who were skeptical about the project, they said, ah, you will, you will never do this because this market, you will never find a way to move it. So we had discussions with those women during three years. And so we moved it one, one early morning. I, we didn't, but they did. They moved their own market very smoothly in two hours' time. And 100 women just, you know, moved to another area that they have chosen and that we have refurbished. We have planted trees. We have done the whole thing clean. Just this is an, an example to say how it is important for us to work with the people and not only for them or uh, so it's, it's a, the, the ideas are taken in common. The, the, it was very uh, politically very, very tense. Also, it was a time where we had our dictator, which was being uh, swept out by a revolution and we didn't have any president. And it was a time of a very political uh, tensity. And, you know, the next day when the market moved, the, the people from the government called me and said, well, how did you do that? We didn't see any journalists and they said, no, I didn't invite you to, to watch how this went out. But just to say that um, our first uh, uh, clients to the cinema will be those people, of course. So we need them as our, they are part of this whole uh, project and idea of, of a social, economical and also environmental project. Uh, people in Chile, other filmmakers also valorates a lot that CCC is happening and they wanted to collaborate. So I think we, we've been trying to open the doors since the, the developing process. And, uh, and other filmmakers are really like thankful of this place to exist. And so we wanted, we, we are always like inviting people to teach, to be part, to collaborate because I feel lucky that I, 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 I know a lot of people. I've been traveling with my film. So, in a way, it's my way of uh, like being like, I, I've been able to be like a bridge of uh, also these uh, possible fundings and my country and it's my way of doing it. I lost my mic. And, and also, for example, all the people that's coming to the market, the Chilean people that, I don't know, maybe 60. So they have known most of them ccc they were looking for an office they've been for gathering for social stuff mm -hmm. so a lot of people is asking us to show their films because there's not enough room for example especially in documentary mm -hmm. so it's happening the same like with women like uh, some kind of curation like or or editorial line is starting for what it's needed like there's this four women project, very interested, interesting that no one's going to show. And so it's like, uh, maybe it's kind of 
I, I'm worried that maybe sometimes we won't be able to show all the films. Mm -hmm. and But still we have a new room for this kind of thing and we know the people and they know, they know we have the experience of not being seen. Change certainly doesn't happen overnight. But would these film professionals sketch out are the many paths that lead to it. We believe that listening to them will help us envision a more inclusive cinematic landscape, in which we, at Berlinale Talents, want to play our part. Keen to deepen your understanding on these issues? Do have a listen to the EFM podcast, Industry Insights, which features two thought-provoking episodes on the Global North-Global South divide. If you want to listen to today's talks in full, you can do so on our website, berlinale-talents.de. And if you want to hear more from a range of fascinating filmmakers we've had the chance to talk to over the years, subscribe to our channel. This podcast is brought to you in cooperation with Goethe Institute. It is produced by 4000 Hertz. Our editor is Vincent Forster. Music is by Rutger Reiners. Project coordination, Rabea Bocholt. Project management, Christina Tröström and Florian Weghorn. And it was presented by me, Anna Serene. Thank you for listening. Thank you.